good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and welcome back to Perfect Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current events in neuronal science. In addition, we'll be joined by Paul DeBevick, who will discuss movie magic in the Matrix. Also, we'll find out what a prion is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Franklin, and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And I guess joining us today is our special guest, Vikram Vulkani. Vikram Kulkarni. Kulkarni. The Kulkarninator. That sounds so cool. It is the coolest name I've ever come across. In fact, hello all. Hey, hey, hey! <laughs> it's the Vic. The Vic Meister. Well, we're, we're glad to have you in the studio here uh, to add a little bit of. Uh, uh, wisdom to an otherwise uh, wisdomless show, I think. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be here. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> so I, I heard that you're the first blow counter on our show. So what exactly is a blow counter? <laughs> well, I'm personally, you know, I've I've had some experience with blow things, but not blow counting. What is? <laughs> yes, uh, unfortunately, it is not as uh, erotic an experience as most might imagine. Uh, <laughs> uh, blow counting, unfortunately, is the term used for engineers who go on site to observe pile driving, which uh, pile most, driving. most people might know is foundation stuff that they put under big structures like bridges and things like that. Foundation stuff, that's yeah, what they call it. Yeah, there. pretty much. Okay. Uh, it's very technical here. But anyway. so, so basically you're watching the pile come down into the ground. Yeah, well, I, I guess for the audience, a pile is a freaking long... Think of it as a nail and a hammer, and then just blow it up by 85 times, I guess. But <laughs> just 85 times. Yeah. And so they, they pay engineers to go out there and... And, and just count the blows <laughs> per minute or per foot and just collect all kinds of statistics. <laughs> uh, it, it has some use for somebody out there, but anyways... Uh, and you, you need a college degree for that, do you? <laughs> a master's, in fact, right? <laughs> uh, yes. I uh, could get a kid to do that. Well, second grade algebra, actually, oh, well. to be particular, but... <laughs> <laughs> Something I haven't yet mastered yet, but no, yeah. not yet. All right, well, uh, we're we're certainly glad to have a blow counter on the program. To, yes, uh-huh. to well, add to our science uh, science wisdom. Yes. Yeah, so now that we know that you're so wise, the the question for you is: Have you patented your genome yet? Uh, hmm. Well, I haven't, but uh, I guess uh, I'll try to clone myself first, and then we'll One go that days? way. Yeah. What What about you, Charles? 
Uh, I've a patent is pending, but uh, patent I'm, pending? I'm, I'm trying to get it on the market by Christmas. Uh, actually, I didn't tell you this, but I uh, I filed it before you did. Ah, darn. <laughs> so you technically belong to me if it gets through. I, I w- you know, if I if I had to belong to anybody, I'd want to belong to you, Frank. And I'm also on eBay too. Way too yeah. much love All in right. this house. But uh, actually, in the real world, this is kind of serious because uh, there's some issues going on with um, with groups of uh, researchers trying to. Uh, patent the genome for SARS. For SARS, that's right. Yes, uh, so if you want to uh, develop diagnostic tools and keep that as your own intellectual property, you can also uh, patent the genome to whatever virus or uh, germ that you're trying to uh, eradicate. Right. Well, there's one good news, though. The CDC is trying to has already filed a patent, and they want to make it available to any researchers who want to use it. Oh, I see. So the CDC sort of anticipated this and they filed the patent early uh, so that everyone could kind of use the idea. Right, but it's also not completely uh, free because I think three or four other groups which have done the same thing at the same time, so they may also have some rights to it, mm. which means that if you know you want to do some research in it, you may have to uh, do some licensing with these uh, companies. Right, right. Well, this has always been a big issue with all kinds of genetic research. You can patent uh, any kind of transgenic mouse you create or a transgenic uh, organism all all the time, right? So right. It's a big issue whether or not we should be patenting life. Now, the, the question I have is, does this patenting have to do something with actually having a test available for SARS? I mean, there's a lot of countries that don't have SARS yet, and right. likely in the next winter, if we see this again, will they have a problem getting testing equipment because somebody has patented this? or uh, they, um, So the CDC wants to make it so that if they want to develop testing equipment for themselves, they have the right to do that. They don't have to pay uh, royalty in order to, to, uh, to uh, use the genome sequence. But will they make it available to the entire world, essentially? Yeah, essentially that's uh, what they want to do. That's what they're trying to do. But uh, some other companies are also attempting to patent this genome, so they uh, can you, some people might that. have to pay. Yeah. yeah. But uh, if anyone wants to know more, uh, they could go into the current news, or there's a little summary in the uh, the May 29th issue of Chemical and Engineering News. Well, you know, if if you're not busy fighting SARS with uh, patented genomes, you can always uh, or blow counting <laughs> or blow counting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, has blow counting been shown to fight SARS? I, I'm not sure. Oh, I mean, if you have the germs uh, down there, you, 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 you smash them. Hit them. Hard I enough. mean, they, they, I don't think they're going to die, but they're probably just going to go into incoherent spasms <laughs> or something like that. Just, just stop doing bad things. <laughs> I, I, I can only imagine. All right, well, if that doesn't work, you can always try uh, smoking some tobacco. Smoking tobacco? Smoking tobacco. What about cigars? Well, if, if the tobacco is in the cigars, it could it could work as well. Mm-hmm. But it's only if it's a very special kind of tobacco. A special kind? A special. You mean the addictive kind? Well, <laughs> isn't there any other kind? It's the best kind, really. Uh, no, it's the kind that's been genetically modified to include human antibodies. Wow, so it's so like you get some antibiotic effects from a it, smoking. It is. So so what these uh, so a bunch of researchers what they've done is they've engineered tobacco to produce human antibodies or antibodies to rabies. To rabies. Rabies. So what they've uh, shown is that they can produce antibodies in the tobacco that, when extracted and delivered, can fight rabies virus. What are you smoking, Charles? <laughs> I'm smoke. What I'm smoking is a cure, my friend. <laughs> the and, cure. And it's an important cure because apparently 50,000 people die every year from rabies, uh, as opposed to, like, I don't know how many people die from SARS yet. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it seems to be a bit of an overblown case thus far, but I digress. Um, so it turns out the, the rabies virus, which is produced in uh, things like horses and, and uh, uh, other types of very expensive animals, 
uh, it winds up becoming very expensive to produce and manufacture. Mm -hmm. But if you produce it in a plant, it's very simple because you can grow these huge crop fields, huh. and chop them up, uh, you know, grind them down, um, smoke them, and then, uh, <laughs> well, at the very least, extract out the antibodies you need and, and deliver them. Cool. So, if only they could do this with a marijuana, then we could have a really useful, medically useful yeah, marijuana. Know, I'm, I'm glad that they're choosing, you know, important, you know, model organisms like tobacco to be growing their... Uh, exactly. Their now, now, are you saying horses are going to smoke cigars to try and get rid of rabies? What's, what's going on here? No, no, no. So, so what they've done before is that they've actually produced, they've, they've produced the antibodies in the horses. Uh, for the rabies. Oh, I see. Never mind. So you can, you My can, bad. You okay. can produce <laughs> or if you make the horses smoke, then they will also produce the antibodies too, right? right? That would be an interesting <laughs> image. <laughs> I, I've seen some stoned horses in my time, though. But uh, um, unfortunately, the study, which was produced in the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences... Our, oh, our favorite journal! That's right. PNAS. PNAS, <laughs> the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. This was led by... Hillary uh, Kaprowski of the Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. And uh, go look at that and smoke some uh, cures. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science this week. You're listening to Berkeley Grogs here on 90.7 FM. Well, coming up is Dr. Paul Debevec, who will tell us some of the movie magic technique behind the Matrix. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, one of the questions that the Matrix movies is trying to address is what's real and what's not? Well, for movie makers, that requires a little computing power. And joining us today is Dr. Paul Debevec, who will tell us a little bit about some of the rendering effects they use for these movies. Paul is the executive producer of graphics research at the University of Southern California's Institute of Creative Technologies, and he's also an alumni of UC Berkeley. Paul, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. Frank, it's a pleasure. So first of all, could you tell us uh, what you do right now? Uh, right now, I lead a computer graphics research group here at uh, this research institute called the Institute for Creative Technologies uh, down here in Southern California. We're part of USC and we're a bunch of researchers who are looking at the various problems of taking virtual reality technologies to the next level. In particular, what our group is looking at is the computer graphics aspect of trying to make it so that we can do photoreal virtual environments, virtual characters, and hopefully get all this stuff to render in real time. So what exactly is uh, photorealism and what kind of applications uh, do you see for this, like besides the movies? Well, photorealism is basically the process of generating virtual images that look like they were taken with real cameras uh, of real stuff lit by real light. Mm -hmm. And uh, traditionally, uh, as you mentioned, the movie industry has been one of the... Uh, the biggest driving factors for creating photoreal computer graphics. And the reason for that is that movies are shot with real cameras of, you know, real people on real 
sets or locations and, and lights. And so the images you see in movies are photorealistic. And when you want to create computer graphics to add in a computer-generated character, uh, do a computer-generated set extension, or create a computer-generated set that integrates well with the live-action photography, then it uh, is important that that computer graphics, those computer graphics elements, also look photorealistic. Now, the places where this technology is, is going even beyond the film industry are places like the video game industry, where mm-hmm. there's a lot of push for certain genres of video games to try to make the graphics look more and more realistic, like it was shot with real video cameras filming real events that uh, your characters are engaged in, as well as the uh, simulation industries and other forms of virtual reality for uh, education, um, uh, even um, uh, things like uh, virtual tourism or virtual cultural heritage. You Mm. want to be able to uh, show people, you know, what the past looked like and you want these things to look as realistic as possible so that the images are believable and people can focus on the content of what people are trying to say with the images rather than just looking at, well, that doesn't look very real, does it? So I understand uh, you made the Campanile movie a few years ago and then uh, eventually that technology was used for the first Matrix. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. Um, I had the, the really great opportunity when I was a graduate student at uh, Berkeley to uh, study both computer vision and computer graphics. Uh, computer vision is the technology um, for taking digital images and writing computer programs that analyze them, either trying to recognize the objects that are there in the scenes uh, or having the computer try to determine you know, what's the three-dimensional structure of what is out there in that image. Um, you know, based on looking at the shading or the lines or the, or the perspective of the images. And, of course, computer graphics is the process of once you have a three-dimensional description of what you want to make a picture of, it's the process of generating that picture. And as it turned out, it was a very good uh, set of technologies to bring together uh, in what I ended up doing uh, for my Ph.D. thesis, which mm-hmm. I, I worked uh, with um, a postdoc researcher at the time named C.J. Taylor, uh, and my research advisor, Jatendra Malik, who is uh, right now the chair of the computer science department there. Um, and uh, what um, the system that we put together was called Facade, and it was designed to create photoreal CG models of real-world places, uh, particularly architectural scenes. And the way that it worked is that you pick an architectural scene, uh, like, for example, the Berkeley campus. Mm-hmm. You go out with a camera, uh, ideally a digital camera these days, but back <laughs> then I was shooting on film and having it scanned in. Right. And um, you uh, take photographs of the buildings. You ideally want to get everything in the same lighting conditions, and you want to see all the surfaces in the scene that you want to eventually be in your computer rendering. And uh, the facade system uh, that was the subject of my Ph.D. was a system that is, Uh, allows a user to interactively create a three-dimensional model of all the shapes that are in the scene. So the, you know, the shapes of the the buildings, of the terrain under them, the the roofs of the buildings, all the things that would be in there. And then it takes the photographs and projects the photographs onto the geometry, basically coloring coloring in all of those geometric primitives in Mm -hmm. the scene with the original photographs. This is a process that's known in computer graphics today as uh, image-based modeling and rendering. 
So essentially, with a total of about 20 photographs of the Berkeley campus, uh, we were able to create a three-dimensional model of it that when we rendered it, it looked, gosh, a, a heck of a lot like um, the original campus. But we could now control a virtual camera flying around the uh, tower uh, and look around in all different directions. So you're not in a helicopter zooming around there? Not a helicopter <laughs> at all. However, there is um, uh, one fun part of taking the photographs is that I did realize that if we could get a picture of the Campanile from above it, that would improve the quality of our renderings a lot for the texture mapping. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, as it turns out, I happened upon uh, a fellow named uh, Chris Benton, who is uh, a professor in the architecture department at Berkeley, who for a hobby actually flies kites with cameras attached to them. He has a whole remote control rig for the cameras, so you can pan and tilt and aim it at what you want. Wow. And he helped us um, uh, using his rig in uh, our camera to fly over the Campanile and get uh, a couple of shots of it from above so we could see the, the colors on those upper surfaces there. So could you tell us how they incorporated your technology for the Matrix movies? Absolutely. So basically the um, what happened is that we put together this, uh, this uh, three-minute movie that we called the Campanile movie, mm -hmm. and uh, we submitted it to the film show of the SIGGRAPH Computer Graphics Conference. This is the place that you know, researchers in computer graphics try to publish their papers, and also uh, the entire motion picture industry involved in visual effects pays close attention to the conference, usually uh, sending most of their technical people to it to learn all the new techniques. And they have this film show that they have every year, and it's called the Electronic Theater, and they show maybe 40 short pieces that are like all the best computer graphics that uh, have shown up in the last year. It has the, the highlight reels from all of the, the greatest visual effects movies. It has new pieces from uh, independent media artists that use technology in new ways. And it has the research pieces uh, as well that explain the new technologies. And we submitted the Campanile movie to this uh, film festival, part of SIGGRAPH, and they accepted it. And so they screened it for SIGGRAPH 97, which was held in Los Angeles. And they mm -hmm. actually showed uh, our film... Uh, just a couple of slots after the uh, the highlight reel for Star Wars Special Edition, which is pretty cool. <laughs> uh -huh. And they actually showed it in the, the Shrine Auditorium, which was uh, the the same place that they've traditionally held the Academy Awards for a long time. So right. It was a big theater and an exciting time. But one of the people who attended that um, film festival was the visual effects supervisor for the movie The Matrix. His name's John Gaeta, and The Matrix was still about two years from coming out. Mm -hmm. And at the time, he was really grappling with, how can I create the bullet time shots, which were in the storyboards. The directors had, uh, had thought this stuff up. Uh -huh. And the camera has to go into super slow motion around the characters who are you know, either kicking each other or bending around bullets and things like that. Right. And uh, have this silky smooth perfectly choreographed camera move not just around the actor but also around the set that you've seen the actor in or the environment yeah and in the movie these characters are in that environment not just in the bullet time shot but they're there in the environment you know for the shots before and the shots afterwards where it's actually real film of that actual environment looking mm -hmm. completely photo real they knew that they could slow down the time of the actor by putting a a big uh, time slice camera rig all around the actors, mm -hmm. essentially shooting um, a little over 100 photographs of the actor all at the same time and uh, playing that back as a movie. Right. But they knew they'd have to do that in the studio on a green screen. 
and they didn't have any idea about how to create the choreographed camera move of the set that would correspond to what they shot of the green screen of the actor. Mm -hmm. And when John Gaeta saw the Campanile movie, where we created a, a photoreal version of the Berkeley campus from 20 photographs and then flew around it however we felt like it, uh, he realized this could be the key technology to completing the bullet time effect. And another thing that happened that made this possible is that uh, there were uh, two grad students that I worked with on the uh, project uh, putting the Campanile movie together. Uh, one was uh, Icho Yu, who's now a professor at the University of Illinois. And, uh, the other fellow was George Borshakov, who uh, was just finishing up his uh, master's thesis uh, that he was working on with me. And uh, he went on the job market that summer. Mm -hmm. uh, he kind of wrote up the Campanile movie stuff that uh, we'd done as his thesis and was uh, able to actually uh, get a job working for uh, John Gaeta at Mannix Entertainment for the Matrix Project, uh, specifically had the job of taking the technology we developed at Berkeley and getting it to run efficiently and effectively within their production pipeline so that they could use it on the movie The Matrix. Uh, they worked very hard. They did great work. It came out very well, and it showed up in, I think, as many as five shots of the original uh, Matrix film. And that came out in 1999, and it was the, the huge success that we all know it is today. Speaking of virtual actors, how likely do you think we'll have uh, computer-generated characters in the future, which look totally uh, realistic? Well, let's see here. We're getting uh, closer to that every year. Mm -hmm. um, you can trace back digital actors in films. Uh, I don't know. Uh, an early example of this is going back to uh, Jurassic Park in 1993. I guess that's 10 years ago now. Right. Where I think at some point the Tyrannosaurus Rex eats a lawyer. Yeah, sorry to that. <laughs> and it starts with a real guy there. But as soon as the Tyrannosaurus actually gets his jaws around him and has to pick him up and have him flailing about... Uh, that becomes a digitally animated version of that actor because they didn't want to you know, pick the real guy up and have to thrash him around. <laughs> that just wasn't practical. Now, was it photo real? Well, I believed it when I saw the movie, but it's just kind of a guy's legs, you know, inside a Tyrannosaurus. It's hardly, uh, you know, a star actress uh, performing the lines of a dramatic scene in close-up. And what we're seeing is that as every year goes forward, people are getting a little bit better at creating these, these photoreal uh, 3D uh, faces and, and creatures. You start to see the whole body. You start to see a face on it. You start to see it in uh, a medium shot rather than just a faraway shot. Mm -hmm. The most impressive work we've seen at this particular moment in time has been in expressive characters that are not quite human because if they're not quite human, you can get away with some things you can't if they're a human character, but you can still explore the uh, emotional content of a performance and try to get that right in a digital character. And the uh, best example of that right now is the Gollum creature from The Lord of the Rings, where you saw Gollum in tight close-up. You know, his face takes up the whole screen, and he's doing a dramatic scene. He's, he's acting. His, you can see the little creases around his eyes. You can see every bit. And it's absolutely brilliant work. I, when I saw that, I was taken in. I thought that was a, you know, something I could relate to up there, and uh, it really, really told a story with it. But of course, you know, he's not quite human. He's close right. in some ways. Um, 
the Matrix new films are actually um, doing some very good work in this area as well. When in the what's called the Burley Brawl scene, there are many, many Agent Smiths, Hugo Weaving's character, mm-hmm. uh, fighting uh, Neo, Keanu Reeves. And they are all done as digital bodies, well, for some of the shots, as digital bodies with digital heads on them. And the facial information that is on those um, to render the faces, which you never see particularly close up, and mostly they're kind of kicking each other, so there's a lot of motion blur, and you can't uh, look too closely at what's going on. Right. Uh, but all of those are actually digitally generated by taking actual photographs of the faces and some 3D scans. And mm-hmm. a bit of that kind of approach dates back to um, one of the final research projects that we did at Berkeley, which was the development of a device called the Light Stage, which is um, something we actually built over in the art practice department, uh, courtesy of Sean Brixey, who's a professor there who lent us some space, where we uh, had a person sit uh, in a chair and then we built this superstructure around them with a 250-watt light source on a couple of um, uh, plastic tube arms that would rotate around them and light their face from all the different directions that uh, light can come from. And then we filmed them in different expressions and from different angles with video cameras. And we were able to create CG models of their faces that actually reflected light the way that their original face did. And we did some initial tests back then to actually drive these faces with uh, performance capture data Hmm. so that uh, we could get moving versions of these faces as well. And this stuff has really been uh, taken to the point where it can create some awesome shots in some movies uh, with the stuff that the uh, Matrix crew's done at this point. Paul, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Uh, Are there any last words you'd like to add? Well, I just want to say that Berkeley was a really great place to be doing this uh, this kind of research. Its uh, computer science department is, uh, you know, absolutely you know tops in the world for the kind of work that they're doing. And you know, if you're trying to do you know cutting edge computer graphics work that's going to blow everybody away, it's so much of a great environment. If you know that down the hall there's people who are doing the best computer cryptography work that's going to blow everybody away. Uh, the best computer architecture work that's going to blow everybody away, uh, the best computer vision work, the best, all of these other things in that environment. There's just such a, such an environment of, you know, doing the best stuff that's really going to, to be on the leading edge there. That uh, I think that was a huge part of our success of why we were able to do so much there. Great. Thanks a lot for joining us today on Berkey Grox. You're welcome. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. And that was Paul Tebevek, who we were just talking to. Dr. Devevek is the Executive Director of Graphics Research at USC. And for those of you interested in seeing the Campanile movie, uh, which I highly recommend, check out his website at www.debevec.com. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, we'll find out what prions are, so stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, now we have the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Okay, and now he has a Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is a prion? Well, a prion is a agent, a protein agent which causes illness. Unlike a virus or bacteria, it has no genetic material, and a prion uh, works by converting uh, good protein into bad protein, and these bad proteins will go and convert other uh, good protein into more bad proteins, and that is how a prion disease is spread. Ah, thank you very much, Tokyo Kid. And now here's the crazy Scotsman with this week's question of the week. Hey, it goes up, it goes down, it's no real nappy sack, isn't it? But what rise is it? It's the cremaster. Hey, what is it and how does it work? If you know the answer, just think you know the answer. Email us at groxandotmail.com. You won't win anything, but I, you just might get a little rise out of your life. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Hickson.